we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is the main claim that was made in the Declaration of Independence, July 4th, 1776. This bold idea, this bold claim that governments were established not to rule people, but to secure the rights of people. And so on this July 4th, I thought it might be fitting for us to take a look at a little bit of what it means as a believer in Jesus Christ to love his or her country, to be a proud member of his or her country, and what it might look like for us today as we try to continue to live up to the ideals and standards that were set forth by our forefathers so many years ago. You know, I, I don't know how each of you come into this room in regards to uh, patriotism, in regards to July 4th. I know for many of us, it's a great celebration. I can imagine, I know some of you were not born here, and so you may have uh, a little bit different uh, relationship with this holiday. Uh, some of you, like, you know, for example, uh, in my own family, my wife born in Puerto Rico, which is a territory of the United States, and so there's... There's a dynamic there that's challenging and difficult. Uh, there are others of you who are born uh, in other places, or, uh, but many of you grew up here. This is your home. This is your place. And what I'd like to do, and actually I love Astra's got her American flag shirt on in the back, and her shoes, her American stars and stripes all over the place. And so, you know, what does it mean for a believer to be patriotic? And, and I will say this, part of this message would apply to whatever country you may be from, to whatever country you feel patriotism for. Because, you know, I think patriotism, the word even, and the word patriot, has become incredibly charged in our society today, hasn't it? It's, a, it's an incredibly difficult term these days. And what I want to do first is kind of uh, explore it a little bit and unpack what it means and what it has meant, what it means for us today, and then see what the Bible says to us about that term, about that reality of one's love, love for their own country. You know, you may hear in the word patriot, you may, if you know a little bit of, a, uh, you know, like ancient languages, Latin or even Greek, uh, the Greek word for father is patrios. And in Latin, you hear pater. And, you know, the pater familias is the, the, the father of the family, the head of the family. Uh, that word is in there. Patriotism means a love for one's fatherland. A love for one's fatherland. And so originally, patriotism had very much to do with lineage. Because the fatherland, you know, you think of this is, though even the word fatherland or motherland, even that word is filled with familial and, and um, you know, ancestry-type language. And for most of the history of the world, patriotism was about allegiance to your ethnic group. Right? It was about, if you, were, if you were German, it's because you had German blood, not just because you were born in Germany. You know, if you, if you were, um, if you were from, and I know a lot of people here, 
in our country who come from Africa, they don't know what country they're from. But if you're from a certain region in Africa, you often affiliate as much with your tribal group as you would with your national group, your language group. And, and there's a, there is a genetic link there. And so even when we use the word patriotism, fatherland, it does evoke, even grammatically, if you will, this ethnic kind of uh, perspective. But we know that here in the United States, uh, as much as there has been racial tension and racial violence and racial discrimination, there is also something unique here and that there has been a nation built out of multiple backgrounds, multiple peoples. And I think in today's world, the way we categorize these things, we forget that even it was hard for the English and the Irish and the French to get along and to see themselves as one people. So it wasn't just a racial thing. It really was, you know, what is your heritage? What is your, what is your, your background? But if patriotism just means a love for one's nation, as we often use it today, that actually seems pretty positive, doesn't it? Seems like a good thing. Shouldn't we all love the nation that we're from? the nation that we're in. But as we know, it has become a symbol for a lot of different things. And so, for some people, it's a symbol of white supremacy. Uh, for others, it's a symbol of American superiority, that America is the best country, full stop, no caveats, no clarifications. You know, the best at what? If you've traveled the world, I imagine you have found some things in some places that you like more than what we have here. I know I have, and that doesn't disparage our country, but it's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever read, uh, I was reading a, a Russian novelist, uh, or a, a novel about a Russian, um, uh, what was the name of that, Han, the, the, uh, the one in Moscow, the man in Moscow, yes, the man in Moscow, and he, no? The gentleman in Moscow, you guys see how, how this goes. And he marveled at how good the bread was overseas. Much better than the bread in Russia. <laughs> but he loved his country. He was a patriot. And so to even acknowledge little things like that doesn't threaten our patriotism. They're not threats to our national security or our national identity. Uh, and so in that sense, I say, hey, patriotism is a good thing. But like most things, it's only good when it's kept in a proper balance. You know, in the 1700s in Europe is where this term patriotism was originally used. Uh, in, in France and then in, in continental Europe. And in the 1700s, that's when the Enlightenment was taking hold. Are you guys familiar with the Enlightenment? It, 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 in totally dumbed down, broad terms, it was the idea of a rejection of the supernatural and a, a requirement of logic and science and experimentation. And so in the, 1800, in the 1700s with the Enlightenment movement, people began to reject the, the Bible in some ways for the first time as a supernatural historical document. Not only its existence being supernatural, but the stories it told that included supernatural miracles were beginning to be rejected on the grounds of science. And you may know the philosopher Rousseau. And Rousseau actually believed that you could not be a follower of Jesus and be a patriot at the same time. Why? Because your allegiance to heaven would supersede your allegiance to your nation. Why? 
because heaven for the church was seen to be their homeland or our homeland, their patrie. And that would supersede your love. You couldn't be devoted to your fatherland if you were devoted first to the land of your father. Now, I think Rousseau is missing something, but I think he also got something that we often miss today. Can you imagine in today's culture, in today's society, the United States of America, saying someone coming up and saying, only non-religious people can be patriots. Imagine that. What does it feel like sometimes, the United States of America, that the religious people are the most patriotic people in the country? Doesn't it seem that way? The first to volunteer for the military, the first to have a flag on their, on their, uh, on their porch or out in their yard on a big flagpole. Do you guys, some, it's not as common around here. Where I grew up, flagpoles in the front yard with the American flag waving. You know, I grew up in the buckle belt of, of the Bible belt, you know, right in the middle of the Bible belt. It was, it was just, you know, surrounded by churches. I am astounded. I go home today. I visit home. Sometimes I drive around the house that I was living in. And I'm like, oh, there's a church right around the corner. And it's not that it's new. It's just there were so many I never noticed them. That's the way it is. And it's a very patriotic place, a very patriotic region of the country in the south, in the Midwest. Uh, you know, you, you find these, these just pockets of people that I might argue are over-patriotic. I think that they have forgotten, in a sense, something that Rousseau saw so clearly over 300 years ago, which is that there is a divided allegiance for a believer. There is. I like that you said amen, Howard, because I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think it's a bad thing. You see, I believe the biblical picture challenges both that view that Rousseau had, that you cannot be patriotic, if you are a believer in Christ. And it challenges the view that to be a believer in Christ is to be patriotic, or to be patriotic is to be a believer in Christ. Because I think there's some today who would say, you have to be a Christian to be an American patriot. There are people who hold that view. And you know, we've seen some interesting uh, things in the news uh, recently, like uh, just the other night, right here in Massachusetts, uh, some very... Uh, sig- uh, what do you call passionate patriots who were arrested uh, right off was it I-95 I think uh, w- with their guns in hand heading up to Maine to do some training for the 4th of July weekend and uh, just walking around the highway with their guns out and the police stopped them they didn't resist they said we're not anti-police we're not anti-government they're patriots and you know I'll take them at their word but that's an interesting display of patriotism isn't it and, uh, you know, if I had to be pressed, if you pressed me and, I, and you said, hey, do you think they're believers or not? Do you think they're Christians or not? Like, if we had to guess, and if you got it right, you'd win $1,000, what would you guess? My hunch is they'd probably say they are. That would be my hunch. And I would certainly say if I were in my hometown, I guarantee you they would be if they were walking around with guns saying they're being patriotic. <laughs> Guaranteed. Um, it's an interesting dynamic. It doesn't matter which one of us is right or who's right on that. It's just an interesting thought experiment, isn't it? As we think about patriotism and faith, it can get really muddled sometimes. But I want to today just look at a couple of passages from Scripture 
and tease out a little bit about what it would look like or what it means for us to be believers in Christ today and also to love our fatherland, if this is indeed your fatherland, or to love the fatherland that is your fatherland, the one you were born in, if, if you have a love for that one. So the first passage I want to look at with you is in Philippians chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look really at one verse, but I want to give it some context for you to understand what Paul, who authored this book, is talking about in Philippians. Uh, Philippians is a book about uh, the church. It's written to the church in Philippi, and Paul's writing to talk to them about kind of what it means for them to be the church in regards to a particular question, and then some sub-questions that come up. Now, it's uh, interesting, after what we've been going through, that the book of Philippians, in some ways, is Paul's letter to remind the church to fulfill the financial commitment that they had made when he was with them. When the excitement was in the air and the pledges came in, now it's time to fulfill them. And so he writes this letter about that. There's also conflict in the community between two prominent women. My hunch is they're arguing over this financial commitment. That's the sense I get, although we don't know for sure. But before he gets to what's called his final appeal in chapter 4, in chapter 3, Paul is talking about how in the church and in the body of Christ, we cannot have any confidence in our own abilities, in our own uh, pedigree, in our own strength before the Lord. We can only trust in Christ. And then in, in verse uh, 17, he says this to the church in Philippi. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but it sure feels like, and it seems like, today, more than any point in my lifetime, increasingly there are people who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I know I grew up in a very religious and, you know, if you will, Christianized culture. But even in that sense, I, don't rem I remember people who rejected Christ. I didn't know of as many people who saw Christianity as a threat as I do today. People who legitimately see us, you and me, gathering here this morning as a threat to our society and have positioned themselves as enemies of Christ. An interesting time to live. I don't think it's a bad time to live, by the way. I think the opportunities in this moment are so profound and great uh, that if the church responds well, this can be a major turning point for the gospel in this country and in this world that will have impact maybe for a century to come, just as we've seen in previous generations. But he says, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. I wish I had half an hour to unpack that. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control 
will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. You see, in this passage, Paul has a future view, but he also has a present view. He doesn't say, when we die, we will be citizens of heaven. He says, we're citizens of heaven right now. Right now. In another place, Paul speaks of the fact that God has put us in Christ, that we are in Christ as Christ sits in the heavenly realm, seated at the right hand of the Father. That you and I spiritually, in this moment, are in heaven, even as we live on earth. There's other allusions to this in other places of Scripture, this idea that we are not really uh, citizens of this earth, but citizens of another place. In Hebrews 13, 14, it says, um, uh, Here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. This is a temporary place. This is just a holding spot. In John 17, 16, Jesus is praying for his disciples, and he says, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And in 1 Peter 2, 11, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... And then he gives them his urging. Uh, in the message, uh, which you might be familiar with, the translation is, this world is not your home. This world is not your home. You know, the scripture is very clear that where we've been placed in this world, the community that we've been put in, the identity that we have as part of this society, this is a passing thing. There is an eternal reality and a present reality that our true home is somewhere else. We are citizens of another kingdom, if you will. You know, we do worry, I, I do and others do, whether the church members or church leaders, about being overly political in the church, right? And I think most of us don't want an overly political church because the term itself suggests something wrong. <laughs> Uh, but then what, what is an appropriately political church? But you have to understand that the church is, by, by its very nature, it is political because by being here today, you are saying that I owe and give my allegiance to a different political power than the one that's in power here. The early church, when they said, Jesus is Lord, they were actually taking a phrase that the Roman emperor used. And they were subverting it. So in Rome, the citizens of Rome were required to declare that Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And we use the word Lord today, and we almost think it's synonymous with God. But think back even a couple of hundred years. How did we use the word Lord in the English language? A Lord is someone with authority. Someone who probably owns the property that you live on. Right? A Lord is someone who has a title. A Lord is someone, we even use the word today, a landlord. The landlord is the person who owns the property you live in. That's where the word comes from, because that's what a Lord or a lady did. They were, a, they were someone who owned the property. They were the ones in charge. If In feudal society, if you wanted to get married, you went to the Lord of your community and asked their permission to get married. Do you understand? They were sovereign over your life. So when we say Jesus is Lord, we're not really saying he's God. We're saying he's in charge. We're saying he's sovereign. 
We're saying he has authority. And by default, if Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not, and neither is Joe Biden or Congress or the Supreme Court or any other governmental body. So it is a political claim for you to be here today. It is. And we have to remember that no matter what else we say about patriotism today, we do have a patrie that is not here. Our fatherland, the land of our father, is somewhere else. And it's not just heaven. It is the kingdom of God that is manifest not only in heaven, but also on earth, primarily through the church. So the church is not itself a political body, but we are the closest thing to the presence of the kingdom of God on earth that there is. And that is a political body. Maybe I'm parsing this a little too finely. Maybe I'm being a little too nuanced here, but there is a difference. But as you come here today on July 4th, and, uh, you know, this is not, by the way, I, I, we knew there'd be like, kind of like a low attendance today because people are doing things, but, <coughs> and so I'm not saying like because you're here, then you're the special Christians. But what I mean is this, the fact that we're celebrating here first before we celebrate anything related to the United States of America, that matters. That matters. This is first. The land of our Father comes before our fatherland. It does, and it must, because this isn't ultimately our home. We are just sojourners. We are just passers through. We are just on the way. And I know some of you here and some of you uh, watching, you have physically experienced on this earth that same dynamic, and you know what it's like to be passing through. You know what it's like to be in a country but not of a country, right? When Jesus says those words, you're in the world, but you're not of the world, you know what that's like to be in a country but not of a country. You know the tension that that brings. But sometimes for some of us who have not experienced that in the flesh, we release that tension too quickly. And we find ourselves way too at home as Americans versus as Christians. And you know, uh, this may not feel like a big difference, but there, there is a difference between being an American Christian and a Christian American. I think you can think about that for a minute. An American Christian tells you what kind of Christian you are. A Christian American tells you what kind of American you are. But one is defining the other. And when typically, you know, one's an adjective and one's a noun. Typically, the noun is the one that carries the most weight, right? And the adjective just, well, what kind of that thing are you? What kind of American are you? I'm a Christian American. And I suggest to you that no, we're not Christian Americans. If we're American at all, we're American Christians or uh, Puerto Rican Christians or wherever you're from, Christian. Because uh, really, those descriptors... They're just, they're just getting at a certain aspect of what you truly are, which is a believer in Christ. You're a Christian. If you put your faith in him, if you've received his gift of his, his sacrifice and his salvation, then you're a Christian first. You're an American second. 
However, it doesn't stop there. The biblical picture doesn't end there. Because I think this picture alone might support what Rousseau said. You can't really be a patriot and be a believer. He specifically said you can't be a patriot and be a cleric, be a pastor or a priest. Um, he said your allegiance will not allow you to. But there's this other passage that I want to look at. It's Jeremiah chapter 20, 29. Jeremiah is one of the prophets in the Old Testament. Um, if you can turn there to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29 is also one of these great passages that I'd love to take half an hour just talking about that. But in Jeremiah, God essentially has... Uh, instructed those exiles that have been cast out of Israel and they're living in Babylon and they're living in Assyria. Uh, they're, they're living in the, the far-flung places for them of their region. Uh, particularly, these are the Babylonian exiles. And this is what he said. I'm going to start in verse 4, but we're going to focus on verse 7. It says this, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. I'm just going to pause there for a second. What does he say? Look, you're not in the promised land. You've been kicked out of the promised land. You're not there. You're in this other place where you feel like an exile, where you feel like an outsider, because you are. But don't simply give up because you're there. I want you to continue to increase. I want you to continue to grow. I want you to continue to lay down roots, even though you know you will not be there forever. By the way, they're there more than a generation. So it's not that the individual people won't be there forever. It's that collectively they won't be there forever. But church, we know that, that you know, we're not going to be here forever. We're not going to be here. Some of, us, some of us won't be here in 30 years. Some of us won't be here in 70 years. That's a relatively short amount of time. We'll be finally in our promised land. But God says, lay down roots. And in verse 7, he says, Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it, proffer, if it prospers, you too will prosper. God wants us to live and bless the world where we are. And for many of us, that's in the country that we were born in, for many of us. But if God has moved you here from somewhere else, then lay down roots. Bless the place where you are. Seek the prosperity of the country, of the city, of the town that you're in, of the neighborhood you're in, of the community you're a part of. God says, don't, don't just be looking so much to the future that you're not available in the present. And there is a sense in which you can love that place. When you look at the stories of the prominent people in the exile, people like Daniel, uh, 
uh, in a sense, Joseph, uh, you know, uh, Jacob's son, was exiled in Egypt. Um, you think of uh, Nehemiah, who was exiled. These people, they didn't give up hope in doing good where they were. And you get a sense that they loved even the places they were. They weren't antagonistic towards those places. You know, Nehemiah is so interesting because he really seems to love the king that he serves. He wants to get back to him after being gone for so many years, 12 years in, in Israel. And he goes, back, uh, he goes back to the king because he really seems to care for him and that nation. And he works for it. And he devotes himself to it. And he sees that it prospers. So again, there's this tension represented in the scripture. Don't forget where you're really from. But don't let where you're from keep you from being where you are. And serving it and loving it and pouring yourself out for it. Not only that, but at the risk of saying the wrong thing here, I, I do think there is something unique about this country. I think there's something special here. I would never say that, I personally would not say we're the best because that feels way too broad. I've been to other countries where they do some things better than we do. And praise God for that, right? Do you really want the rest of the world to be worse than us at everything? Like, that's a bad thing. That's a bad thing. I want, I want the world to be wonderful, as wonderful as it can be. And I want God's blessing to be present everywhere. I tell you what, we were just in the mountains in um, uh, Rock, uh, Smoky Mountain National Park and Shenandoah National Park. And you know what it made our family think? Oh, I really want to go back to the Swiss Alps. <laughs> They're better. <laughs> They're amazing. They're awesome. Like, that's just something. That's just some, there's just something to that. And then, you know, sometimes, like, we'll go and get donuts. We're like, oh, remember those donuts in London? Bread ahead donuts. Oh, those were amazing. And that's not because we don't love our country. It's because God has given beautiful, wonderful things all over the world. Um, we, there are these alpine slides in, uh, in Smoky Mountains. And I was like, you know what? They're not really as good as the one on the Great Wall of China. They just aren't. That's amazing. You know, it's just incredible. That's a good thing. But there is something that's different about this country from, from, I think, any, if not most, but maybe any other country, um, is that this country was built not on an ethnic ideal, but on an ideal of purpose. It was built on an idea more than it was on a people. And even in the beginning, and I know, I know that our country has a history of, of slavery, and I know our country has a history of, of um, uh, oppression and, and that kind of relationship with all the indigenous peoples who are here. I understand that, and we do not want to gloss over that. I love that, that Beth just, you know, in her own confession, just bringing up being quiet about justice issues. Those matter. And so I'm not overlooking that, and I'm not whitewashing that in any way. But what I will say is this. I I don't know of a country that was built first on an idea. And it's hard for us in modern day to remember that it really wasn't 
a monolithic group that was here, even if they were all from Europe. Because all those people fought each other to the death when they were in Europe, and yet here they gathered around an idea. It's hard for us to remember that part of history. What are those ideas? Well, we heard one this morning. We hold this truth. Truth, right? Fact. Truth. Powerful claim. To be self-evident. It does not need to be justified or proven. That all men are created equal. All men are created equal. Now, I know there's history with that too. Men and women, white men, black men. I get it. But here's something that's really interesting. It could have been written differently. Thomas Jefferson, whose house we visited a couple of weeks ago, he could have written, all white men are created equal. All English-speaking men are created equal. He could have, but he didn't. I think there was something in him, not only that he was aware of, but something he wasn't aware of. I think... I think I'm always hesitant to say, you know, God did this or God did that, but I wonder. That's an inspired statement. It's an inspired statement. All men are created equal, and they're endowed by their creator with unalienable rights, meaning these rights cannot be taken from them. They cannot be alienated or separated from these rights. The right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This, this idea of equality that our nation is built on but has yet to perfect, right? Very far from perfecting it. But the one it was built on, the idea it was built on, is a biblical idea. And I have studied other religions, and I don't see this idea as strongly in them as I do in these scriptures. The idea that all people are created in the image of God is a biblical idea, right? That every single one of us has value, not because of what we do or because of what we look like or because of where we're from, but we have value because God has placed it in us because he has, in a sense, placed his image in us, that he has placed himself in us and on us. And that's what gives us value. And so the early founders of this country were odds with themselves when they spoke of equality and when they owned slaves. And that's true, and that's, that's troublesome. But they still did believe that all men were created in the image of God. And it created that conflict, and they felt it. And you see it in their writings. Thomas Jefferson was at great conflict with himself over slavery, even as he owned slaves. Uh, not only that, but the Bible teaches that we are all equal in Christ. In Galatians 3.28, it says, There is no Gentile or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and Christ is in all. And Paul's not saying that there's no such thing as a Scythian or a barbarian or a Jew or a Gentile, but he's saying that in Christ, the barriers are erased and eradicated because everyone can receive Christ equally. And so therefore, in the eyes of God, all are equal. These are powerful ideas. This country was built on the idea of freedom, even though we've yet to perfect it. Freedom. Freedom of what? Well, primarily freedom of conscience. Reminds me of 
Peter and John, when they're before the Sadducees and they've been preaching the gospel and they arrest them and they whip them and beat them and they say, look, we're going to let you go, but stop preaching Christ. And Peter says, um, uh, you decide which is right in God's eyes, to obey you or to obey him. Should we follow our conscience or should we follow the law, the authorities, the powers? And we have codified in the Constitution of the United States the idea that, no, you follow God first. And there were just recently Supreme Court decisions made about religious freedom, which you may agree with or disagree with on their, on their particular grounds and terms. But however, there is still an idea in this country that freedom of religion and freedom of conscience supersedes the authority of the government to tell you what to do. That's a Christian idea. Not only, but it is a Christian idea. And then the government's responsibility to protect life, liberty, property, that's in the Scripture too. The Old Testament is rife with passages about justice for the oppressed, justice for the poor, and justice for the rich, by the way. That's in the Bible too, interestingly. Uh, do not, uh, there are so many commands that basically say, do not uh, be biased either for or against the poor, for or against the rich. Do not judge someone without two or three witnesses. If a witness lies against you, then what would have been your punishment becomes their punishment. This is the rule of law. And you have to understand, historically, the rule of law was a new kind of thing that had begun to be built in England, through something we call the Magna Carta, and you can read that history, but not really fulfilled the way it has been here. And although we know that we've lived it imperfectly, we know that there are wealthy, powerful people who get off the hook all the time. We do also see wealthy, powerful people put in jail. We do also see that. These ideas, these ideas are biblical ideas that are worth pursuing. And so... When I think about patriotism, I think I love as much what this country can be as I love what it is. And I do love what it is. But even more, I love what she still can be. I love what we still can be. And I worry when I see that these ideals are being unraveled in front of our eyes. Because it does seem that some of that is happening. Which brings me to my final point which is just simply to remember that no country ever fulfills its ideals. No kingdom has ever fulfilled its ideals. The only kingdom that fulfills its ideals is the kingdom of God. And that's not even happening right now on this earth. It's only happening in heaven. But the day will come when the kingdom of God will be revealed fully on earth and it will completely and fully fulfill all that God has created it to be. That day is coming. But we await even that. And so I do think that another way that Christians in some ways can be the most patriotic, the most patriotic people, is that we can bravely and courageously acknowledge the failures of our nation. Hold our nation not to the standards of our nation, but hold our nation to the standards of God and press for a more holy, righteous, God-honoring country than the one we have right now. 
And there's so many ways that fleshes out. It fleshes out in the relationship between ethnic and racial groups. It fleshes out in the relationship between men and women. It fleshes out in the relationship between those who have and those who have not. It fleshes out in the relationship between those who are in the church and those who are not in the church. Those who are in the church and those who are in other churches, other faiths, other religions. You know, we have a responsibility and an opportunity to exemplify the best of the ideals of this nation because so many of them are found in Scripture. Now, as I said, I get a little, I have a little bit of a difficulty with just saying, America's the best, right? America's the best. The best at what? Let's get specific. And then I remember that we can't be the best at everything because we fail just like everyone else. And that's okay. But to love someone doesn't mean that you lie to them about who they are. So to love your nation doesn't mean you lie about what your nation is. It's actually patriotic, to be honest. Just like it's loving to be honest with the people you care about. Just like it's loving to be honest with yourself. It's loving to be honest about your nation. And when someone says something about your nation that you don't particularly like, it would be very Christ-like to be gracious towards them. Wouldn't it? So, I don't know if that uh, message is needed for anyone in this room. I think we could all use a reminder. I know I can. But what I come down on in this is that if patriotism simply means to love the land you're from, I think God is very pleased with that kind of patriotism. I think God is very pleased with people who are passionately seeking the good of the place they are and the place they're from. I think God smiles on people who have, uh, who have some uh, appreciation and love for the culture they're in and the people who are around them, the people who have helped him, them to become who they are. And I think God finds that patriotism to be the, the most powerful and effective and, and healthy when it's in the context of the reminder that this is not our final stop. We're just passing through. But as we pass through, may we leave this place better than we found it. May we experience all the goodness that it has to offer. And may we love it with the same love that Christ has for this country and for this world. Because remember, for God so loved the world, right? God loves the world. He's not of it, but he loves it. And we can too with that kind of godly, Christ-like love. So with that, uh, happy 4th of July, church. And may your celebrations be wonderful and uh, joyful today. Let's pray. Lord God, we have been given such a blessing uh, to be born here or to live here, to be brought here, to experience life here, even though it's not perfect, even though there's so much still to be done to fulfill your, your greatest good for this place. Um, but Lord, you have placed us here. And if you had placed us in Vietnam or if you had placed us in Norway or if you had placed us in Sudan or wherever you had placed us, Lord, we would say bless you for putting us in this place that has so many good things, even as it needs continually 
to strive for the things that are your best. But Lord, on this day, we celebrate the founding of this nation. And I do wonder, Lord, how much of a hand you had in those simple words. That we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal, are endowed by their creator with unalienable rights. Rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Lord, we thank you that though those rights are being protected imperfectly, that we do have, we do have those promises to stand on. We do have those commitments uh, as our foundation. But Lord, as we go through this day and through this week and through the year ahead, through the decades that are to come, Lord, as our country will face many challenges, we pray that you would give us the wisdom to be gracious peace seekers of the city and country that we're in. Lord, that we would find that we do increase and multiply in beautiful and wonderful ways, even as we may feel like strangers and aliens in our own land. And God, that whatever comes, that we know that our ultimate hope is not in this government, it's not in a Supreme Court, it's not in a president, but it's in you. It's in Jesus Christ. It's in the kingdom that you have pulled us into, not the one you have pulled us out of. And so we praise you. We bless you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.